Welcome to the Young, Wild, Financially Free podcast, an audio experience where we don't just talk about it, we live it. All right, welcome to the Young, Wild, Financially Free podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. Matt Teifke here. Got my co-host, Andrew Roberts. What's going on, buddy? Hey, man. So uh, we had a super exciting podcast with Andres, and uh, there's nobody like him as far as um, sophistication level that I've ever met with. Yeah. I mean, coming in here, that dude is just top-notch smart. No one's ever brought three pages of notes for to our podcast yeah so he was like super organized but he is running or part of the ut endowment fund which is i i can't remember i think maybe we talk about it but multiple billion dollars Mm -hmm. that they're managing and they're probably seeing some really cool investment opportunities all the time right yeah so it's fascinating it's cool it's not real estate you know focused 100 percent, but investment investment focused yeah and it's so cool that like what they do with that money is, you know, um, they donate to, uh, they fund MD Anderson right. Cancer Research, right? you know, which, I mean, hits close to home for a lot of people mm-hmm. and such a great thing. It's very really awesome. Yeah. Plus this dude set aside what he's done, what he's accomplished just is uh, a great guy. Yeah. He went to Texas State University, my alma mater. Yep. Apparently we were there at the same time, but I guess just missed each other. Uh-huh. He was probably studying while I was at the bars. <laughs> but yeah, awesome guy, you know. A lot of surprises. He yeah. played D1 basketball. Right. Tried to play professional baseball. Yeah. That he's was his, a, that was his dream when he was a kid was to yeah. play pro baseball and then you know, he realized where his strengths were and kind of went with that. So it was an amazing story for sure. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be exciting to see. I, I don't think he's going to – we'll see what happens. I, I doubt he's with UT for his whole career. Sure. And what would be the next move after running an endowment fund for UT? Something big. Yeah. So that would be interesting to see. Yeah, I'm excited to kind of keep up with him and, you know, keep that relationship going just to, you know, support him and, and see where he goes. Yep. Yeah. It was a great podcast. I know that you know the listeners are going to enjoy it for sure. Yeah, yeah. I hope you guys enjoy, um, and we're going to get to it. Thanks. The Young Wild Financially Free Podcast is provided by Calderon Creative. Calderon Creative was built on the desire to create projects with their clients, not for their clients. Run by husband and wife duo Joe and Katie Calderon out of Austin, Texas, Calderon Creative specializes in video production, photography, and creative consulting. With nearly 10 years of creative work under his belt, Joe has done everything from wedding films, brand films, music video, to commercial projects. Joe handles the creative side, while Katie handles the business management side. The duo believes in telling each individual story, whether it's for a large corporate client or a small local business. No matter the story, each project gets their full, undivided attention. Creativity is a collaborative effort, and Joe and Katie love to involve their clients every step of the way. We are a client of Calderon Creative and have done some really great work, some really great video work with that company. We love Joe and Katie. They're great people, and they have done some awesome work for us. If you are a small local business or a large corporate client, please call or email Calderon Creative. You can find them on any social media platform at Calderon Creative or at their website, calderoncreative.co. We're super excited to have Andres Delgado here today. Hey, guys. Thanks excited for, to have you. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm personally super excited 
we met at somewhat of a party uh, a couple months ago and you were kind of telling me about some of the stuff you had going on with UT and the endowment fund. And I'm like, this is amazing. This guy's doing some big moves. So we would love to kind of jump in and hear about uh, your story, like how you got started in the business world and uh, just kind of give us a quick background if you don't mind. Yeah, um, I would love to do that. Um, so, you know, the way I got started really, um, I mean, it's a long story. I don't want to take too long on it. Take but, your time, man. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm sure you guys got a lot of people that are like, hey, I read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and like, you know, the the whole like, you know, being like independent and financially free, as you guys call it. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of really how I got started. My dad, um, he's an engineer by trade, but at the end of the day, he was always an entrepreneur because my grandpa was an entrepreneur. And I think he always pushed for that kind of mindset. And I always felt like I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do, regardless mm-hmm. of what that meant. Right. So I always felt like, you know, I had a bunch of plan A's, never had a plan B. And initially it was like, oh, I want to be a professional athlete. And then it became like, I actually want to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And I actually, you know, went for both. And <laughs> then it kind of went through like, you know, uh, at the end of the day, like you, you kind of start like, shooting darts and you find something that starts clicking and you start becoming good at it. And at the time, I think uh, Warren Buffett became a huge influence on me, reading some of his books and just like got fascinated with the world of like equity investing. And then um, when I when I actually learned at a program at the Texas State University that you basically, if you get in, um, you could invest some of the endowment money. They, they give, uh, the, it's called the Student Managed Investment Fund. You, you I think it was the time was like maybe half a million dollars or something like that. So you get to actually invest and that money would go towards like scholarships, um, I don't know, endowed professors. So it's, it gives you a fiduciary duty towards, you know, like that money. So like, it's not like I'm just going to go and trade it at whatever's hot right now, but you were, you know, thinking more like, well, I want to trade based on like the long-term objectives of the fund trade based on like, you know, what's the asset allocation or the risk reward. And that kind of started changing my framework on like what I wanted to do. And at that point I decided I wanted to become an investor, Um, a real investor who manages money for all the people. And um, so that was at, sorry to interrupt, but so that was at Texas State University. Correct. In St. Marcus. Is that where you attended for your undergrad? That's right. Yeah. So I, me too. Excellent. Go Bobcats. Yeah. What year did you graduate? 2012. Okay. I graduated 2014. Awesome. Year, right. So I don't know if you've heard of the Smith program, but uh, to me that was life changing, um, especially from an endowment perspective, and it brought me full circle because uh-huh. like now I work for one of the largest endowments in the world. Right. So um, going from just I don't know, I think it was it's up to a million, I think now, but uh, it was a great experience. And then it's funny because I went intentionally wanting to become an accountant. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do accounting, get my CPA. And, um, and I, it really like went a completely different direction. Because, you know, sometimes like people are like, well, accounting is a safe job. And like you sure. always, you, you'll never run out of accountants. And I was like, yeah, like that makes sense. I'm good with numbers. But then like I realized that no, investing was really something I enjoyed and I, I was passionate about. Right. Um, and then that took me to pursue something that in the financial industry is called the CFA program, which is stands for Charter Financial Analyst. Okay. And um, it's kind of like a CPA, but like just for investment professionals. And I learned that at Texas State, they actually gave me a scholarship to take the first exam. It's like a three-part exam. Wow. Um, one of the hardest things I've done to date, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And 
you know, it shapes the way you look at investing as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. Very cool, man. Um, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big history guy. You said your grandpa was an entrepreneur. Your dad was. Can you kind of tell us what they did and, and yeah, what you I mean, saw? So my grandpa, he actually, he had a hardware store in a small town in Venezuela. That's actually where I'm from. And, you know, like it's really, really small town, but he was really well respected. And, you know, like he always like emphasized like, you know, sacrifice, working hard and like, you know, very punctual person. So like, you know, it, just things that you have to have if you want to be successful, period. And right. my dad, he was actually the first one in the family, large family to, you know, he got a scholarship and got attending a really prestigious engineering school in Venezuela. And, uh, and then he went to work for like, you know, the, the oil company and like, you know, I think he saw that like, he, you know, third world countries are a little bit different, but like he, I think he saw that he didn't want to be a tied to, you know, income and didn't want to be tied to certain things. And he was more of like an entrepreneur himself. So, you know, he, you know, he's done multiple things right now. He's actually doing real estate in cool. Panama cool. along with my sister. They do, you know, a lot of things you guys do from like, you know, resale, like uh, managing properties, like just helping find deals for like both commercial and residential real estate. So, um, you know, he, he, you know, I think he, he became a, I call him one of the best salesmen I ever met because right. like, you know, he always told me like, you're going to either, you, you know, you're always going to sell something. Uh-huh. Either yourself or a product, but you gotta always be thinking like, you know, what's gonna be, what is it that you're gonna be presenting to whoever it is right, that you come yeah. across. Very so I think true. that's kind of also shape a little bit. And at the time, he was, uh, he was involved in, in um, you know, a, a lot of uh, at the time. I think there were a lot of those, which people call pyramid schemes, but a lot of those <laughs> businesses came to third world countries, and they're like one of the things they had is that they they brought a lot of education, you know, books and like great training and one of those was actually rich dad poor dad that's how i got a hold of it oh wow um so is rich, is rich dad poor dad a pyramid scheme no uh, okay no no i'm saying like it was part of the training but right. it, it kind of like, you know it was one of the things that you know to set up that mentality of like you know you know the rat race like stay sure. away from that and so it, it just set the, the stage for me as well and at the time i, I was like oh maybe i want to do real estate i want to definitely have a multi-diverse portfolio and as you know as i got on i was like well you know, what's the difference between real estate and uh, equities, fixed income, and all kinds of asset classes. And I wanted to learn more and more and more. And now I feel like, you know, I'm in, in an endowment that invests in all these things at a really large level. I'm like, it's great to have that kind of exposure. Sure. You know, I learn about things that I never thought I would have to learn. And, uh, you know, we have like oil uh, investments. We have private equity venture. Like, you know, it's yeah. a you know, really large portfolios. So. For, for people that don't know, can you tell us how big this, this is a big fund? I mean. So the, I, I, the last time I checked, I think it was like 45 billion in total assets that, that yeah. we are, uh, oversee. And it's the second largest in the United States and probably in the world next Yale, to Harvard. Harvard. So Harvard. it's Harvard, us, and then Yale. Wow. So we just passed Yale not too long ago. Wow. So, at, U, at UT. It's UT and A and M, but most okay. of two thirds of the assets belong to UT. Gotcha. So it's a humongous uh, operation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And and uh, you know uh, I help oversee the what we call the public market function, and that's about a third of that. So it's like roughly you know ten to fifteen billion. So to me, it's a huge honor. You know, I, like be able to 
you know, just have impact on, on those assets and, um, and you know, it make, makes you make decisions in a different, different way. Sure. Um, that's one of the things I learned at Texas State. Like, if I would go and I would make a buy Apple because I felt Apple was the hottest thing at the time, like, I would think about it twice before suggesting it for the endowment funds because I was like, well, this money, if I lose it, actually, it's going to impact all the people. Maybe somebody's not going to get the scholarship. Right. So it really makes you want to do a, for more work and, and be a little more diligent about, like, the whole investment process. Yeah. So that's... Uh, the biggest fund that I've ever heard of or talked to uh, somebody that's part of it. So I'm curious, was there like a, a big step? Like were you, did you come from Texas state and all of a sudden, boom, you're in this huge fund. Was that a crazy, no, you know, and like, I think in the world of like institutional investing, you're obviously like you got your Ivy leagues. So, you know, you go to wall street and most of those people are going to come from like Warren, um, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. And like, Texas State is not really a target school. You know, I think uh, I was one of the lucky few that got an opportunity to intern at Goldman Sachs, which is a very well-known investment bank in, uh, based in New York. And uh, to me, that was like, obviously, it really opened the door. Um, I had an internship there, actually, within the, it was a mortgages team, which covered like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with mortgage-backed securities, but they were instrumental in the financial crisis. Right. Um, so in some of the biggest, more well-known deals in that sector came from Goldman Sachs. And so to me, it was like, wow, it's just so cool. I get to go to one of the largest banks and learn from like some of the most amazing, smarter people out there. So that was one of the ways that I, I got my foot in the door in the industry. And then... Um, Did you get to go up to New York or was it... Correct. That was in New York. Yeah. Wow. So internship in New York um, before I graduated. And then after I finished, they offered me a full-time job. So okay, it cool. Was like, it, yeah. So it was like, you know, you have to work really hard. Because not everybody got a job offer. So, sure, yeah. Um, what do you think about New York? Well, New York's amazing. I think that you know the the culture there is something else. Like yeah. you get people from all over the world. Um, you know, I spent four years there, so for me it was like now I got friends from like all kinds of like Egypt, China, wow. India, like you name it, like right. Latin America, Puerto Rico. Like it, it's just such a diverse place. Uh, many things to do. Um, I you know. You got Broadway, you got like great like rooftop bars, like yeah. it, there's a, a lot of things that, you know, that it, it has to offer. And sure. for me, like I'm a huge runner. So like running in Central Park uh, was huge. Um, yeah. Did the New York City Marathon twice. Nice. So to this day, probably my favorite marathon. That's cool. Even though like, I always cramp on it. <laughs> you guys got something in common. He's a, Andrew's a huge runner himself. Really? Yeah. Oh, great. Well, she go for a run. Then. Yeah, I'd love to. Maya, I asked about New York because like that's one of my like dreams is to like I told my wife like I I could would be cool with running like a, a tiny one bedroom apartment and just like living in the city and she wants absolutely nothing to do with that so we compromised and we're doing nothing with that at all <laughs> we'll never go so we'll never go near New York yeah you know, so it's funny because like yeah you know I always I always told myself you go to New York and I think most people fall into the category you go to New York and you always put your you put an expiration date uh-huh. and then you revisit that date Okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm only for a couple of years and then two years, like become another two years. Uh-huh. And then you, you, you're constantly reevaluating. I, I think when I got there, I was like, you know, I want to do two to four years, maybe five. I think five was like eventually the, but then, you know, as, as you got, as you start seeing like all, all the people's life as they evolve and they want to have families, then you got to think about like, do I want to move to like the 
outskirts in New Jersey or like in like Long Island, commute on a train, right. three hours, four hours a day. Yeah. I'm like, uh, I don't know if I want to do that. And yeah. like having growing up in Austin, I'm like, I always knew the other the other side of that. Uh-huh. And I, even though like traffic here is bad, but it doesn't compare. It yeah. just doesn't compare. And, um, you know, and also size, like, you know, you pay a lot of money for a very small play, sure. place there. So... Um, I yeah. think it became it became that, and that's why like so I don't blame your wife. For, yeah, for <laughs> yeah, she's the smarter of the two of us, so I don't I don't blame her either. It, with that being said, it was a great experience. That's cool. Um, and it, sorry to interrupt, but you know that internship also, you know, led me to pursue a different um, besides the CFA. You know, I did this thing called FRM, which is stands for Financial Risk Manager. Okay. And one of the guys in the group in the mortgage group was probably the smartest guy, one of the smartest guys I've ever known. He's like, yeah, that one's harder than the other one. So anything that's harder, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna do it. Like, uh, yeah. So you know, it's just those two really set up, you know, my my holistic framework on risk and investing. So yeah, that's kind of what really got me started, and then that that led to Uchimco. So yeah, just to finish up your your uh, question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, curious about just that little comment you just made about you know something being harder or more difficult, and you're like, you know, wanting to take it on. What do you think that comes from what do you think that originated in your character you know it, uh, i don't know I, I grew up playing sports i think two years old i was playing baseball and i think if you grew that's where this is my, again i don't know but that's where i think it probably came from and being in sports teaches you a lot of things right so like how to win how to lose and no one likes to lose right, right. i think as a little kid if you learn that like you're like well why don't i why do i hate losing more than i like winning mm-hmm. And, and I think that kind of started shaping that framework. And then as I got older, I was like, well, there's, there was all, you know, you'd go through different levels of pain, but right. somehow pain led to, you know, growth. And I'm like, oh, if you think about muscle growth, right? There's stress, yep. rest, and then they grow. And I was like, oh, so these, all these things kind of like help you get somewhere. Right. And um, like I mentioned earlier, my grandpa saying like, well, if you don't sacrifice, you won't get anything. And I think that also goes back to that type of character building um, traits that help you want to like challenge yourself, right? Like, you know, like, you know, I had to like leave my family, like as a young person come here and study and like do, so it shapes who you are. Yeah. And I think that now it's like I consistently just seek for different challenges, whether it's like taking a heart test uh, or for towards a designation or like just like learning a hard subject, another language, or now I, I just did my, or I guess not did, but because it rained out on me, but did my first half Ironman. And um, oh, wow. so like you just keep pushing that boundary and you ne- you'll never know those, what your limit really is, right? If you keep doing that and just keep pushing that limit over and over. So I love that, man. That's a good point. Well, we'll have to get you guys to uh, both run and see who stops first. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do with uh, with cramps too on my marathon, so I'm right there with you. Uh, I played baseball growing up too, so I'm just curious what position you played. So, which position I play? Very, what's your What's your start, favorite? My favorite is shortstop. You know, so one nice. of the best shortstops in the history came from Venezuela. His name is Omar Vizquel. Oh yeah. Um, so my dad was a huge fan. Um, he actually wore in Venezuela number 23 which was my birthday is on the 23rd. So, and one of my favorite, two of my favorite athletes, Michael Jordan and LeBron James, both were number 23. Yeah. So it was a little cat, uh, thing. Yeah, interesting. There, so. Shortstop, right? Cleveland Indians? Cleveland Indians. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cool. 
That's awesome. Um, so now, uh, so you were uh, in New York for four years for Goldman Sachs, and so was it uh, a direct, I guess, jump from Goldman Sachs to where you're at now? No, really. Um, I spent four years in my role at Goldman. Um, it was, you know, dealing with like, you know, uh, balance sheet planning, uh, capital allocation, strategic, you know, um, different strategic uh, projects that we had at the time. And I knew I wanted to become an investor. So like, you know, mo most of the things I did were like related to the, the, what they call the securities businesses, which is like trading, market making. And I, I wanted to be more like a long-term investor with, you know, policy statement, you have the strategic asset allocation and you decide like, you know, how to construct a portfolio and, and then you wait out and like monitor it. So I wanted to become the traditional Wall Street route, go to a hedge fund or even like an asset manager group um, you know, this is a lesson right here, you know, learning to like being able to change direction um, because like, yeah, I mean, it is really tough to break in, especially in, in, on Wall Street. Uh, so I kept, I, ha I was clinging to this idea that I wanted to become the next um, Warren Buffett, right? And, you, and then you're like, well, there's multiple ways to become an investor. And, and then I was like, I kept really thinking through what is it that, why did I started this journey to begin with? And it came back to the whole like, well, like I enjoy my experience at Texas State, that thinking of having fiduciary responsibility to, towards like a school's assets. And, and I was like, well, why don't I look into institutional investing and see what else is out there? I was like, I also wanted to potentially move back to Texas. And I was like, look at the two. And I was like, wait, there's an opportunity at this place called Utimco. And one of the interns we had at Goldman, his dad, who was actually one of the persons I work with now, came from Utimco and he had great things to say about, um, you know, his dad spent his whole career there managing fixed income portfolios. And at that time I realized like, you know, this could be that full circle I always envisioned. And, you know, like went through like, I don't know, it's a pretty long process, but like probably two months of interviews. Wow. Um, got me do like a project, like manager selection project. Like how would you pick an investment? Can you write an investment memo? Um, so it really put things in writing to see how you articulate like your thought process, like your investing um, process, and then also the quantitative part. Can you look at the thing like portfolio returns, benchmark returns, like how will you pick a uh, investment A versus investment B and why? Mm -hmm. And then here's two like uh, two decks of like two potential invest investments, like why will you ask these people and like you know, what would you try to get out? And, um, you know, I, when I was working through the whole thing, I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been a great experience being there for two years now and um, would never, would not, I would not do something else. Uh, you know, like in hindsight, everything's 20, it's always 2020, but yeah. yeah, I'm really, really enjoying what I do. That's awesome. I guess I got a bunch of questions for you. <laughs> uh, so you, you got to take me to school here, but I've always kind of looked at investing and returns as, the more risk, the more potential for the return. Um, how do you kind of analyze? And like with having such a big fund, do you have to say like, you know, this we do want to be risky or we don't? How do you kind of balance all those things out? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not saying you're, it's not a wrong mentality because like, you know, you do have to take risk to get any return, right? I think right now, like if you were to just, I think savings are yielding like less than 1%, right? So that's zero risk, right? So if that's your goal and that's your objective, then that's the right investment for you. But as you start looking more at like what's, what ability 
to take risks do I have, right? So for an endowment, we are basically an infinite horizon investor, right? So like it's supposed these these assets are supposed to last for a lifetime, right? Actually, not even a lifetime, like more like generations. generations. Right. So when you have an indefinite horizon, I think um, it changes your ability to take risk. Right. So I'm like, I can have money locked for ten years, and it shouldn't be a huge deal, if in, in you know in theory. But um, so therefore, I could take more risk. But then you also have to remember, like, well, what's the objective? Like, you know, we want to give out scholarships. We're funding research. Right. Those are cash flows that need to be used at some point. Right. So when you're looking at the operational budget or uh, how much does these institutions rely on that money, then you have to say, well, I need some, some level of liquidity to be able to meet those objectives. So the way I think about it is like, first, what's your objective, right? So is my objective to maybe like retire in 20 years, 30 years, or is it like to be able to fund research that's gonna be starting in a year from now? Once you have the objective set up, then the next thing is like, well, what's your ability to take risk based on that objective? Right. right? So if you, if I need to, if I need to basically pay for, you know, I don't know, my my son's uh, college, you know, he's only nineteen months, but like in in a, in in a month, I'm not gonna go and buy a real estate asset that's gonna lock me in for thirty years or something of that nature. You go for something that will be a month tenure. So that changes the whole game, and you have to think about the objective first, right. and then the level of risk that you can take before you can say, well, what's the return I should expect from that? That's you know? a good answer. I love so, that. Okay. Yeah, I think that's the, the the way we usually start. And now, you, Timco, um, you know, for an endowment, like usually, is about five percent target return plus inflation, educational inflation, which tends to be pretty high, higher than normal inflation. So I think that's usually what sets up that. And then our ability to take risk is pretty high, you know, because right. we really have an indefinite horizon. And that's why we have real estate investments, natural resources, private equity. And, it's, and that's basically something called endowment model, which is like, since you have an indefinite horizon, you can take on a liquidity, you can take on term risk, uh, term premium, like material risk. So I'm like, you should be able to take the most risk out of almost any institution. So that helps you know, in setting up the framework on why you're going to actually invest. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So that, that was leads to my other question is like you personally having your own investments, you probably have a totally different perspective because it's, you know, different Com- timelines, completely and, you different, know, not absolutely. multiple yeah. billions. Exactly. It, it's different, right? You have to think about, like I mentioned, like, well, what, what, what's my objective? For a lot of people, it's like, you know, we, I'm going to get later into a topic of financial freedom because I know that's part of your your uh, theme. But right. um, I think it starts with that. What does that mean for you? Right. So like for some people, it's like, I want to retire when I'm 40. I'm like, OK, well, you better start taking more risk right now. Right. right. So the, then you're in your 20s, you can take a shh. Well, I'm not going to curse, but yeah. a lot of risk. <laughs> right. So that you can take in your 30s or 40s. And then if you get to your 60s and that's that's when you're taking risk, we should have a conversation. Right. Uh-huh. So I think that for me, you know, I'm. I'm relatively young, so I think it changes the scope. I can take a lot more risk than probably my, my parents. Right. So that changes the portfolio, which is primarily you know equities. Um, although like one of my largest investments is in real estate, and I'll get to that when we talk about probably behavioral biases. Um, <laughs> because yeah, I mean uh, we bought a house last year, and like it, it was one of those things that is like well now I have like a lot of capital tied to an actual physical asset. If you really want to grow long-term capital like t- it's always been known that like either you're 
you know, and I'm talking about equity also from either private, whether you're an entrepreneur, that's your private equity, or if you're investing in the secondary market, public markets, and then you want to buy Apple, Google, Netflix, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where like most people tend to gravitate to. Right. Okay. And my third question, last one for me for now. Uh, thinking about the economy, like just in general, you know, we're in the real estate business every day. Personally, I'm looking at deals and I'm like, these are just crazy. I don't understand how people are paying it, but they are. We're seeing like two caps, three caps, four caps in Round Rock, Texas. Um, how did, how does, you know, I, I feel like UT and the fund would have a much bigger perspective. Uh, and I know no one knows the answer, but, yeah, but how do you I, think about that? I think, I think before I, I answer this, I, I have to say that, you know, this is just my belief, um, and I believe we're a byproduct of our environment, our experiences, the people we interact with, the information we come across, and how we process all of these. So this is my opinion from that collection of things. It's not the U-Team co-opinion. We have, obviously, we do have a, you know, risk team. We have, like, a, our strategic allocate, asset allocation team, which same, sets up those frameworks, right? Like, you know, but my view is that, you know, we're probably late innings, Right. We're gonna keep the baseball terminology, yeah. but I've been hearing, oh, we're like in the eighth inning, like since I started in finance. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, it's been a 10-year bull market. If you start from like the finan- when the financial crisis hit the low, it actually last month was a 10-year anniversary from that low, mm-hmm. and it has gone up significantly, right? Right. So one thing that's gonna happen is like, yeah, a lot of things are probably very expensive in a lot of asset classes and we're seeing that you know it's just part of that cycle you're looking at the economic cycle debt cycle whichever um company cycles you're, you're starting to see like where are we in that cycle and we're definitely later stages now one thing i'll add is that this one might be a little bit different because it also was kind of engineered by like central banks right you know after the financial crisis it didn't just hit the united states it hit uh, europe it hit Asia. So like all these different central banks got together almost and said, well, we're going to actually pump these economies and we're going to like basically just put a lot of assets to work and we're going to like lower rates and like incentivize as much as we can. And so now like you have this really long market that was kind of engineered and the moment that it shows a sign of weakness, they go and they pump the gas. And an example happened recently. Right. I think December was a great example. Last uh, end of 2018, markets were looking like they were going down south, yeah. and they did. And then what was happening? Oh well, they were raising interest rates. They were reducing the balance sheet of the Fed. And then like the message they were saying is like, hey, growth is probably going to get out of control, so we don't want that. And then those comments weren't really well received by the markets, and the markets immediately reacted, right. saying like, hey, you better help us out. And then the tone change. Now it's like, well, maybe we're not going to increase this year. Maybe we're going to reduce rates. And then you're seeing how back to that same growth, same, um, you know, mentality, like it's going to keep going up mm-hmm. and you're seeing interest rates back down. Uh, I'm sure that's probably in the real estate market. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing, right? Um, so you're seeing like a lot of companies like Lenar, uh, which like at the time was thinking like, okay, we're a late cycle. Now they're, looking a lot better home depot is looking a lot better because you know it's just incentivized you know that the housing aspect and right and i think you're going to continue to see that right because it's just tough to think that something could last forever mm-hmm. and you got to know at one point that 
there's going to be a peak and it's going to come one way or another and you just have to stay true to your process i think that's the key so if you're not used to paying a certain multiple for an asset don't be feeling like well this time might be different because look at what happened to bitcoin everybody thought that yeah. that could keep going up and I mean, God, that was insane yeah, yeah. now i'm not saying there's a bubble in the market but there's definitely uh something to think about right yeah. you know is this time different it is a little bit different just because of that financial engineering going on um, right. by central banks but at the same time i like stay true to your process like right. don't don't fall into the trap like everybody's doing it and maybe people are paying these kind of prices and i should just go ahead and do it i think that's a you great know? point from even from a real estate perspective uh I, I heard this once but it was like there's some people that want to sit on the sidelines and jump in when the market crashes but if, if that's your theory you're going to be out of the game like that's when it's actually really hard to buy mm -hmm. so you know, you always have to be looking at deals and analyzing and not get swept away. And like you said, stick to that process. Like it's okay. You can still buy deals in a hot market if you're being disciplined about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think in terms of uh, on the whole market timing thing, like, you know, the, there's a, there's a quote that I, in Wall Street you hear all the time is like being right, but being early is the same as being wrong. Right. So yeah, that, that, adds, that adds to your, what you just said. So I'm like, you got to think about that, like, well, like, I'm going to start selling now because the market might have peaked. But, like, if you would have done that two years ago, right, you would have missed out on a really decent market in 2018, right? Um, so, in 20, 2017. And then the other thing is, like, are you looking at other opportunities, right? So, that goes to, you know, behavioral biases. Like, are you really looking at what's available? Like, just because Austin is expensive right. doesn't mean that everything in Texas is expensive. Absolutely. Right? Maybe as a whole it is, but like, is it cheaper in Europe? Perhaps. So yeah. if you do have access to other investments, always you have to be open minded and think about that opportunity objectively and holistically. Great point. So I'm curious about, because you just mentioned uh, earlier about how you uh, made an investment, and I'm assuming a primary residence. Yeah. With your home. So I'm just curious, you know, with, you know, your mindset and your background in education, what was your emotional, uh, I guess, thought process through that transaction? So it, it, it's funny because I've always, you know, if, if you come from that school of thought that like proper, you know, your personal property is not an investment, um, it's tough to really make that jump. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'll be the first to say that all my, my full emotional biases came to display the moment my son was born. Uh -huh. um, we came back from the hospital and our apartment was basically pretty much, it was flooding. And oh, wow. yeah, so for the first day we didn't know, we noticed it later or early the next day and starting to smell, bad night, we had to go to a temporary place. And, and at that moment, I think, you know, I was a little bit probably emotionally unstable because I First time becoming a parent. Sure. And I was like, you know, I don't want my family to go through this. Like, we, we're going to go and we're going to buy a new house. Like, I don't want to <laughs> have to do anything to it. Yeah. It has to, which is, I was wrong. But, uh, <laughs> and, and at the same time, it's, it goes back to that, you know, emotional bias of self-control. Self uh -huh. I wasn't really thinking like, you know, oh, well, like, you know, is this the right time to buy? How are interest rates? Like all the things that you should think about, you know, uh -huh. like, I mean, luckily we, you know, from a financial perspective, we were applying for it. Right. So it's not like, oh, I'm just gonna go irrationally go buy it. I mean, sure. um, but the timing of it was definitely something that came from an emotional decision. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to build a house. 
and um, that that started the whole process. And as I was going through it, then you start going through the, my typical process: the due diligence and the location, the schools, the you know, like meeting with the builder. Like I actually went and I talked to the people in the neighborhood. I was like, How, "What was your experience with the builder? Like, did anything go wrong?" Like, I went full on due diligence. Wow! And I was like, <laughs> I was like, "Well, that that kind of it's the way I would approach any investment." So, and I looked at interest rates. Obviously, like there's so much you can control, right? At the time, they were creeping up, but they were pretty much stable. Um, and then, like, yeah, like we actually locked our our rate at the time, the great time because then like, they actually rally and. I, I was like, man, I'm so glad I did. And now they're back down. So I'm like, oh, man. but I wasn't going to yeah. wait. It's just one of those that you just got to do it based on like your opportunity set as opposed to like the timing of it. It's hard to time interest rates if you're a buyer. Yeah. So, but, you know, you just have to be aware of what you're paying. Sure. Yeah, I got you. Um, and also earlier you were mentioned that you wanted to touch on the topic of financial freedom. And since that's like our whole our whole mantra, I'm curious about – your opinion on it and, and what you wanted to yeah, discuss. Yeah, you know, I, I, I always, you know, and I go back and forth, but I think freedom, you first have to start saying, well, what, what does it mean to you, right? And if you were like, if I, if I was a financial advisor and you guys were coming to me and, and I want to be like in charge of managing your your portfolio, like I have to know what that means for you, right? Uh-huh. So I, I come from the school of like, you know, the entrepreneurship and like, and you know, I think that's a, if that's for you, man. Like you have to do it because like it's so important that you take charge of your life and what's important to you. Like I say, my sister's entrepreneur, my dad's entrepreneur, and um, but like all you also have to think about like you know what does financial freedom mean? Like if I were to tell you like, well, you're gonna get a lifetime contract on your next job, right? And the amount of money you're gonna get is gonna be more than sufficient for anything that you actually would like to buy or do, right? right. Um, then people will actually think twice about like, do I really want the stress of being an entrepreneur? Because it's not for just anybody. It, it requires a lot of work. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, you have to definitely like understand like what it actually means to you and, and put it on as an objective, you know? Um, like for me, like financial freedom, you know, it means, yeah, like the ability to like, I mean, I like to travel. Like we as a family like to travel, so I like to travel. I like to, you know, be able to help, you know, others when I when I can. I like to be able to, like, yeah, I always want to own a house. I always want to have, like, a, an actual investment portfolio. I want, obviously, you want to retire when you, while you still can enjoy your life, right? So those are, that's how I define it. But that doesn't mean it's for other people. Mm-hmm. Now, for other people, it might mean, like, you know what, like, I want to have a billion dollar in the bank. I'm like, well, okay, that's great for you. But I feel like money, at some point, it just, it doesn't have the same effect. Like if you give um, ten thousand dollars to a guy who's making ten thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. that seems like a ridiculous amount of money, right? right? But then like as you go to like I don't know Bessels and you tell him like, hey, here comes a hundred thousand dollars, he'll be like, ah, you know, not really worth it. Like, yeah. So the slope I think it declines as you go through certain levels, and so you have to definitely be objective about what that means for you, yeah. and especially the the word entrepreneurship, it gets like misplaced a lot of times because you know an entrepreneur is a person who wants to create a company right and some people go for it because they want to have actually what they say is they want to have time independence they don't want to have to go to an eight to five job I'm like, okay great well then then find a job that's maybe a midnight or like you know like define what that really what it is that that means and, yeah um, i think that's something that you know like as a 
investment person, I think like it all begins with your objectives. Yeah, um, that's, and, a great, that's a great point. I mean, I think my brother and I are prime examples. Like, I'm I'm focused on on making money, building the business, growing, and and not necessarily for you know fancy things, but just to to have opportunity to do things. Well, my brother is like, I'm good. You know, he he retired from the Marines. He's going to school, and he doesn't have that drive. And yeah. it's not to say that I'm more financially free than him, or you know, whatever. So you're, you're right. Everyone has their own definition of what that is. Yeah, and you know, one of one of my favorite books. It's um, you know, the book Outliers. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. Yeah, but, um, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, and yeah. you know, he he said something that I would I always I wrote it down. I was like, the qualities that work needs to have to be satisfying. And this comes work because as an entrepreneur, you're going to work, yeah. right? People forget to say that. But, you know, one is the autonomy. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people really want to be an entrepreneur. They want to have autonomy, right? They want to be able to say, like, when they show up, right. like, when they do it, and what they do, right, without saying, like. But as you start progressing as an entrepreneur, let's say that your business grows really fast. And now you're like, well, the, the next step for me is to actually either – Get a help from a bank, right? Because, you know, sometimes leverage helps. Real estate, that's a big valuable proposition. And then, or maybe you want to sell a stake to another investor, right? I have a private business and you're like, I could use the capital. We can actually use the, the money to grow. And, um, and as people start coming in, that autonomy kind of declines. And then eventually, like right now, uh, Uber is going public. Guess what? There's going to probably, get, you know, board directors, regulatory yeah. uh, things they're going to have to do. And that autonomy just kind of goes away. Uh-huh. Now, are the people that have created Uber and entrepreneurs? They are. But that autonomy kind of goes away. So, you know, you have to know what, you know, what level of autonomy you're, you're willing to tolerate, you know, to be able to just do something you really enjoy. And that's why you see, like, a lot of people eventually sell their businesses and, and decide that, like, you know what, like, yeah, they lost control of it, like, um, didn't um, Apple fire um, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs yeah, yeah. and yeah. then he had to come back. He's, I mean, come on. Like, yeah. No, it's a that's, really good point, man. I, and, and then the other two, which are easier to find, it's complexity, right? Which, like, that's why for you probably being an entrepreneur is great because you want that complexity because yeah. that is what really drives you. I mentioned earlier the ability to find harder things. It's like constantly learning. That's that complexity, right? Mm-hmm. Not get bored. And then the last one is that connection between effort and reward. And I think that's the other reason why people become entrepreneurs because they feel like, well, you know what? If I work harder, maybe I'll make more money. As opposed to like, if I work harder at my current job and they don't pay me more, I don't have control over that. Right. right? So yeah. I think that's another reason why you see that. So you have, there are many, many jobs out there that do have that connection. You know, luckily for investment investment people that that's a connection your judge based on your returns and how those returns compare to either other uh, competitive firms or the benchmark that you're supposed to be and so on so i think that, that that's just I love a way that, man. to i'm glad how you articulated that and and you're right and you know have my own business i know some people look at it like you got your own business, but you're 100 percent right. You're still working, and you still have things to do. You're probably working more than if you were oh, doing a regular eight to five. 100 percent, way more, yeah. Yeah, but you love it. Right? I, I do love it. I do love so, it. So I, I think that's important at the end of the day. You know, being willing to put in the, the work. Just think about the results and forget about the work. Right. Yeah. yeah. Curious about um, I see on uh, our itinerary here um, <laughs> that um, about dealing with failure. And, uh, you know, knowing when to move on. I'm curious about 
uh, any personal stories that you may have about failure and how you were able to deal with that. Because I feel like you, I mean, with all this knowledge on um, investing and how to be a less emotional investor, um, you'd have some insight on that. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think it, failure is the key to success. And now, I'm, being, I'm saying failure, but you, you just have to be understand that it's not really failure. Like, you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier, like, I wanted to be an athlete, right? Um, you know, that was my one of my first dreams, was, right. you know, crushed. Unfortunately, the whole, like, you know what? Luck equals skill, uh, equals preparation plus opportunity. Um, I had the preparation and I had the opportunity, but guess what? Like, I didn't get lucky because talent matters. Uh -huh. You cannot coach high, especially in basketball. That's what they usually say. <laughs> so, yeah, as a guy who had dreams of becoming, like, you know, a professional athlete, um, those dreams were crushed because, like, you know, there's just so much, you know, having the right, there's a lot of ways. So that was one. But it also led to learning how to fail. You have to learn to fail well. Mm -hmm. Right. So like you can if you fail at something and then all of a sudden like you're like, well, like move to the next thing. But you didn't realize what matter during that experience. Um, so the real experience is I actually went to California to do a tryout for the Lakers, one of the summer league facilities. No way. Yeah, for real. Wow. And um, I, get, I get there, man. These people are their eyes. They're hungry. <laughs> like. You, I've never seen those eyes in my life before because for them this was everything. Yeah. For me it wasn't, even though I thought it was. Right. Right. So I'm like, man, for, for some of these people that was the only way out. I always knew how to what I could do whatever I wanted. That was yeah. the mindset my dad taught me, and and I felt like, oh, I could just do whatever I want. And, you sure. Know, I could do it through school. I could do it through entrepreneurship. I could do it through whatever. Uh -huh. You know. Um, and the same thing. You know, I, I'm a drummer. Um, had a band. We did. You know, we toured. We did like, several things and. You know, eventually, like, it just became, like, that was the next step. I was like, I, I'm going to fix failing from the last experience, and I'm going to go. And I actually went to uh, the Berkeley College of Music for a seminar there because I'm like, this time I want to see what the best people are doing. Uh -huh. And I went and I learned how they practice. That was one thing. I was like, why did I, did I fail the first time? I wasn't practicing correctly. Okay. So I'm like, I need to learn how these people are, like, what, how much work they put it in, like, you know, the technique, everything that needs to be there to be successful. And I went and I learned and I saw a lot of progress. Now, then, unfortunately, investing really, when I got to Texas State, it was a different thing, man. Like, I loved, I loved the world of investing. Mm -hmm. And I was willing to, everything, all that progress I had made in the music world, I was willing to let that aside because I'm like, this is really what I, what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you, that's the, the whole, the next part. Understanding when to move on. Yeah. Like, despite, oh, I could have think, like, well, I already put in all this work. Why should I quit now? It's like, no, it's not that you're quitting. It's like you've, you're looking at the best opportunity. So in the investment world, like, I mean, I own Netflix uh, through last year and on the, sometime this year in, in my personal portfolio. And I was like, I've, I've learned, like, when to realize, like, when to move on from one investment to the other. Uh -huh. I had to sell Facebook at a loss. And because I just decided that the regulatory pressures that I saw in the company were just not something I was willing to be comfortable with. And people are like, some people could have been like, well, you sold it too soon. Look, it rebounded. I'm like, that's fine. I didn't want to deal with that. Yeah. You know, I, my thesis changed. So the moment that happened, I need to learn when to move on. Nice. So the same thing, the opportunity set changes. I saw an opportunity in the investment world that I'm like, this is what I want to do and I want to pursue. All the work you did before, it's just, 
you know, it's just that cost is gone. It's just, you know, some costs move on. And so that wasn't failing, but like it was me deciding when to move on. Right. That's a, I feel like that's a big, uh, that's a big thing that people struggle with is knowing when to move on. Um, because, you know, I know you said you have a sports background, you know, I played football and, you know, one of the things that I learned, was like not to quit, right. Not to give up. And so that's something that I feel like a lot of people struggle with, especially in an entrepreneurial mindset is not wanting to give up and move on. But like you said, you know, you got to see the opportunities for what they are and make the smart decision for you. Yeah. And it's not failing at the end of the day, because, you know, like uh, one of my favorite investors out there is uh, Howard Marks from Oak Tree Capital. And, you know, in one of his books, he says, like, experience is what you got when you didn't get what you wanted. And oh, that's yeah. so key because it's like that experience carries on. Yeah. Right. And then like some of the best investors out there, they've been around. They have seen cycles. They've seen like 30 years ago, like when inflation was actually something that drove the market. And right now that's gone. Inflation is not really something that people are really paying attention to. So, you know, you see like the bubbles, right? The financial crisis bubbles. Um, now I can say I, as a, my experience taught me and I was grateful I didn't buy Bitcoin. Because, you know, I'm like, that was my first bubble. I'm like, that's great. I avoided it. And I, I was, I knew I wasn't going to get carried away with it. And actually, if I would have had the ability, sure. I would have shorted the hell. Oh, yeah. Actually, I, I looked to. into it. And I was yeah, like, I did too. Okay. Because they, they opened the features and I was like, oh, this is what exactly. But then the collateral you have to post. I was like, it was just, they were, it was too much money to, you have to post. And it would have paid off. But I was like, I don't know if I want to do, it didn't seem like that kind of risk because people can be rational, markets can be rational for way too long. And right. I was like, do I, am I willing to, I, I'm, if I'm early, I'm wrong. So I'm like, right. I didn't know if I was early or late. Um, so I just decided to stay on the sideline. Um, well, I heard today, it, they just made it simple. Somebody said failure is feedback. I was like, oh, that's genius. That's all it is. Failure is feedback. Yeah. And you have to, you know, you have to be even kill also when you win. Right, because people focus so much on like we learning when you fail, but I'm like you gotta learn when you when you do things right because sometimes that you know if you're on a roll like man why did I do why am I getting that success now like did my that last deal went well what did I do then that I can do now and like how can I carry that on right so you have to like stay you know stay even when you lose and stay even when you win Absolutely. don't get the hype mm-hmm. you know you have to, I think that ego can sometimes like really force you to do things you don't want to do so. that's a great point as well um well shoot man uh you have a lot of different backgrounds yeah. i think you may be the most interesting man in the world <laughs> no i just lakers just say, just baseball a lot of experiences <laughs> yeah that's, but that's that's what life is about right mm-hmm. i'm sure you guys know that yeah i, f- I fell well there <laughs> Well, that's good. I mean, that's a lot of people can learn from that. I feel like we could, you know, just keep talking to you for hours and hours on end, but um, we're we're getting to a little bit of a, you know, a time limit here. And so I kind of wanted to wrap up with asking um, what you're doing um, present day with the endowment fund and um, just kind of an update on, on that. Yeah, I mean, right now my role is, um, you know, we, first of all, like, I mean, I, I want to put it high level, like, we have like an investment process that we follow. So we have teams that set up our objectives, they set up our risk limits, they set up how much we're gonna be allocated as an asset class. I cover public equities and fixed income. So like we have about 15 billion in total. And once you know like that, then the rest is like our job to construct a portfolio for that asset class. So 
we basically have a manager of manager model where we invest in some of the best investors in the world um, across markets. We have U.S., uh, Europe, uh, China, like any anywhere you can imagine, we have money on the floor. Wow. And um, so one of the things we do, we want definitely we monitor the portfolio, constantly looking for a better like re, like if a manager is not doing well, we constantly looking to see like how can we better the portfolio right so that requires a lot of due diligence um, I just finished um, a very long due diligence process for new investment um, so that in basically requires doing like quantitative analysis qualitative analysis going through like you know fund uh, documents going through like investment memorandums like all kinds of things looking at exposures over time correlations like anything quantitative you can imagine we do yeah. and then the, the most important part is like what fit does it have in your portfolio? Like, are you adding more of the same? And I think that applies to anyone in investing, anyone that wants to buy something. You gotta think about like, what's the role of this in my portfolio? Because if, it's, if you're just adding more of the same type of exposure, then you're really missing out on the only free lunch in finance, which is diversification. Mm -hmm. So we looked at things like that. Like, what, what can we add to complement the portfolio, to enhance the risk return expectations? Um, and I think the, you know right now the U.S. market has been difficult um, in general for a lot of people and a lot of institutions. So we just basically thought, you know, we, we're going to try different things. So you know, we started looking at quantitative investing, right? So that's systematic investing, people that buy like do factors and you know all kinds all kinds of like you know algorithm based. Uh, so we yeah, we've been just roughly evaluating that space and getting a feel for like what it has to offer and how can it enhance uh, our current roster. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, it, it's very interesting and like, I always like, a, it's like a feedback loop. So you're always getting feedback from the market and like nice. um, looking at what to add, what to like, you know, on the margin, what to trim and. You guys uh, have any interest in investing in a local property management company? <laughs> hey, you know, we have a very large real estate book. Uh, uh, we do have a lot of illiquidity. Uh, I think 40% Roughly forty percent of our book, it's in um, in yeah like illiquid investments, private equity primarily. But yeah, real estate is a huge, and yeah, we we it's malls like Europe. I think we have some China. I'm not sure because that's not my expertise. But yeah, that, huge deals. Uh, but yeah, that's a question <laughs> Never for the real estate team. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. um, but yeah, that's uh, that's kind of some of the things I'm uh, I'm working on right now. That's very cool. And so, big picture, like what's the um, what's the goal? Um, for for you with you know with what you're doing well you know I, I think I learned earlier one you want to set outrageous goals that's step number one so I you know for me it's like you know they're, they're, I try to like you know I, I, right now I'm enjoy, definitely enjoying what I'm doing and so I'm not putting any like you know this is the limit and like I, there's no limit I think you know obviously the limit in the organization is like I'll be the CEO and the CIO and like the one like managing all the asset classes right um, so for me, that's like, yeah, obviously you got to really aim really high. Right. Um, but I think even more bigger picture, like I do enjoy knowing that what I'm doing has an impact. Um, and like, you know, at Utimco, we, we actually just recently changed like, you know, what we call our mission. And it's like, we say we to be great, which means growth endowments for research, education, and advancement of the world treatment in, uh, in patient treatment. Um, so that's our mission. I'm like, man, like to work for, towards something that has that type of impact is great. Um, and then, you know, we want to eradicate property through education. So as long as like I'm getting 
those three things autonomy you know which i feel like i, I my opinion matters and the things i do have an impact um in the decision making process and you also have like you know complexity in what you do and right now i'm still being so challenged um and you also have that connection between like you know work and rework i think you know it, it's a great proposition for me but yeah i mean my parents uh were entrepreneurs my grandparents entrepreneurs I always feel like perhaps down the road that could be a, something I'll, I'll venture into. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but I think right now, like I just want to become be the best institutional investor I can be, and um, put no limits to, to anything I, I can learn. Really. Yeah, that's awesome. And so in the the mission for uh, Utimco, uh, it's the the T stands for you know treatment of patients. So is that primarily for uh, patients that are medically? It's primarily cancer, okay. cancer research. So uh, MD Anderson is one of the institutions that we actually support. Okay. And um, they're obviously one of the most well-known cancer research places in the world. Right. So for us, like that's a huge part of our um, mission, be able to you know, contribute towards something that I hope in our lifetime we can secure, right? Yeah. Um, so many people die every year of cancer and like to know that you, even if it was through investments, that you contributed towards that to me is like man like if i can tell my son like yeah like the work the reason i i worked late or like a lot of times i miss whatever you were doing because uh, you it's going to happen like even as an entrepreneur people think that no if you you might miss important things but knowing that the, at the end of the day like you're contributing to something greater than yourself right i think that that matters i think like you know when you're all and looking back so yeah i think that's huge i mean at the end of the day like you know we were talking about financial freedom and uh you know money i mean it doesn't matter if you're not doing anything good with it right if you're not helping benefit somebody and you know i don't i don't see a, a better cause than you know yeah right i've gone over to md anderson so yeah. um that's awesome and on behalf of you know a lot of people you know thank you that's awesome very cool thanks man uh, well, hey, man, we appreciate it. We know it's Friday, so probably got stuff to do. Um, this was great. I think. Yeah, no, thanks. I'm glad we, we were able to make it happen. I know we kept postponing it, but, you know, it's a, it was, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. We really enjoyed talking to you, and, um, you know, you were a joy to talk to, and um, I hope that, you know, this friendship continues for sure. Awesome, yeah. And uh, if anyone's uh, going to comment, comment on who can run longer. Andrew or Andres? <laughs> we'll have to run a marathon together. We'll, we'll see who gets the best time. We'll see. <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys later. Peace.